And this is Talk the Talk, and this is our segment with Max Page, who is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max is with us every Friday. We really appreciate his time and his insights. And there is a lot going on this week in particular in the world of higher education. So Max Page, let's start, if we could, please, with what's going on with the community colleges a proposal uh, that has gotten significant attention, which is to make community colleges debt free or free for students who are 25 years or older, kind of a second chance at college kind of program. There's a report out. Can you tell us what has happened and what it means for people here in Massachusetts? So yes, Bill, this has been, I think, the culmination, uh, not the culmination, a next major step in the work that a lot of us have been doing for years to make public higher education much more affordable and, as you say, debt-free, so that every resident can graduate from a public college or university without debt that, will, that would burden them for sometimes decades. So what the governor proposed was that anyone over 25 um, would be able to return to community college and have tuition, no tuition and fees. I think that is likely to go through the legislature. It's been supported um, in the House and in the Senate. The budget process right now is that they are resolving, they being the Senate and the House, are resolving the differences in their budget, budget proposals. But that proposal for free community college for those over 25 you know, looks to be uh, in both places, both budgets. I will say the more exciting part, or even more exciting, is that the Senate president has really committed to making com community college um, truly free for everyone, hopefully starting in the fall of 2024. And obviously we in the MTA and our local um, senator, Senator Joe Cumberford, have pioneered something called the Cherish Act, which would actually allow for anyone to go to any of our two or four year colleges or universities and to guarantee that they would graduate without debt. So this is exciting times. There's a lot of movement on a goal that many of us have been uh, working on for many years. Max Page, one of the concerns I have, and I think a lot of people have about this proposal, good as it is, is that it doesn't cover the expenses that a person uh, going back to community colleges is gonna have. I mean, these are, for the most part, people who are working, who have jobs, who have families, who have responsibilities. And okay, this is a really good thing to not have fees and to not have tuition and so on. That's really important. But there are a lot of other expenses that go into affording a college education and that that is not addressed, or is it? No, it is not addressed in this initial proposal for free tuition and fees for those over 25. And that's why we in the MTA have been, frankly, um, critical of it as too limited. You're exactly right, Bill. Something like four-fifths of the true cost of attending college is not the tuition and fees, especially at community colleges, which, which their tuition and fees are lower. It is all the other things you just talked about living, sleeping, eating, tra transportation, childcare. And if we are really committed to having working class students get to go to college and not just go to college, but graduate, then we really need to respond to those needs. So that's why when I say debt free, 
I'm saying that students should be able to graduate without debt after we calculate in all those expenses, the, what, what's called the true cost of attendance, not just tuition and fees, but also your room and board, transportation, and for those who need it, childcare. So that's, that's a big leap from kind of eliminating um, tuition and fees, or at least helping people pay the tuition and fees um, over, over the age of 25. Rather, we want a full, true, debt-free program that we used to have in this state. Let me just remind people, it was not that long ago, all the way through the 1980s, a student go to, could go to UMass Amherst, where I teach, and which is the flagship campus and most expensive, and they could work 10 hours a week, um, minimum wage job, and pay their way and not graduate with debt. So this is not, we are not reinventing the wheel. We are, we are uh, rediscovering what we once had. So explain this to me. Uh, the cost of going to college is obviously uh, significant. What I would like to know is what is the rationale behind being age 25? Why age 25 to have this free uh, uh, community college uh, tuition and fees? Why? Why 25? I think it was the idea of go, go beyond the years of a typical college student uh, who might have gone at age 18 and spent the next four to six years getting a degree. So it's trying to go for those who might not be also might not have access to the same kinds of federal grants um, or may or frankly may have used them up and did not graduate. So the idea is to get um, adults who've been working to be able to come back to get a degree or a certificate that they might uh, need to advance their careers. And are these students going back to community college are they by and large looking for a two-year associate's degree as a terminal degree? Or are they looking for a four-year degree? Uh, are they looking for vocational training? Or are they looking for a liberal arts curriculum? Who, who are these individuals? Well, I think, I think the governor in her proposal imagines it's um, working adults who feel like they need some either degree or certificate to help them get to switch careers or advance in their careers. And this is actually one reason why we remain skeptical of this. Our goal should be to allow every young person, if they choose, to go to the public college or university of their choice and that they get into um, and be able to graduate debt-free, whether it's a two-year college or a four-year state university or the, the UMass system. I think, of course, our goal is to educate students so they have skills so they can go out and get a job. And we still know that there is a huge premium for having a college degree, two years and four years even more um, to advance and have opportunities in your career. But that is not the only reason why we provide public higher education. We want an educated population of adults committed to civic life, uh, involved in lifelong learning, creative adults, there is a broader goal for public higher education that we have to keep in mind. So that's why a universal debt-free program, that is what we are proposing in the CHERISH Act that is in the legislature now, would give access, the fullest access to students over the course of their lives. So Max Page, could you? Well, Max, ahead, I just Buzz. wanted to ask you uh, about the pre-tuition for community college program in Boston and how that dovetails with what you've been talking about. 
Yes. So th those are some interesting experiments to say that any graduate from from you know Boston High School could go to one of the community colleges. What those are this is really important. These are again last dollar programs, which means you get all the you know Pell grants for federal financial aid grants. You get the the Mass Grant. That's our state program. And after that, then the the city and other whatever donors have given money to that will make up the difference to cover those tuition and fees. Our argument is that let's look at the full cost of attendance and make sure it's it can be guaranteed because what we're finding, what we see over and over, is that working class students, some of them, even if they're if they're at the top of their class, top scores, they their ability to go to college is dramatically lower than similar wealthier students. I mean, it's a huge gap between the students from, say, in Amherst, where I live, and Chicopee or Springfield, even if they have the same scores, same grades, they don't have the same opportunity. And you can't just um, make it happen on the cheap. That's my main message. If we really want to address the racial and economic inequalities around who gets to go to college and gets to go through, you're going to have to spend the funds to make sure it's possible for working class students to go. And the Boston plan provides that uh, regardless of immigration status, which is not an unimportant thing. Well, that, thank you for bringing that up as because the Senate proposed that um, that we allow for in-state tuition for undocumented residents. And this is something also we have been advocating for many years. And this is, I believe, maybe the the first time it's sort of been included in the budget. So there is some hope that perhaps it could finally happen. I fully agree with that position. Max Page, could you sort these various programs and bills out for us? We talk about the Cherish Act. We talk about the uh, uh, the Fair Share Amendment. We talk about the um, various uh, proposals for debt-free higher education. Um, could you just give us a thumbnail sketch of what's what and, and All right. sort this out for me please yes so the, it is confusing because partly because we have a patchwork of 29 colleges and universities not one centralized system and also because people and in, in towns and universities are are experimenting to deal with this problem which is this huge growing debt crisis that we have in the commonwealth we are we have seen some of the fastest growing debt um, of our students and our residents in in the entire country over the past 20 years. OK, bottom line is there's a series of small experiments like in Boston that's saying, hey, let's allow, allow any graduate to go to a community college. That's a that's a, a local program. Then there is the governor's proposal to say, well, let's specifically help those over 25 working adults who want to go back to community college. And she also wants to do it kind of on the cheap in the sense of Whatever little bit of money you need to make up the tuition and fees um, that you don't have, you can do that. The this, this Senate president is proposing a much more universal free community college program to start not this fall, but next fall. That's her goal. And then at the top of the heap, the very best <laughs> is what we are proposing, along with Senator Senator Comerford, which is the Cherish Act, which would sort of which would make a universal um, right to access a debt-free public higher education at any public college or university. And let me be clear, if you're very wealthy, you will graduate debt-free anyway, so you will not get the assistance, the extra assistance. If you're a working class kid, you will not only get 
support for tuition and fees, but also, as we said, the housing and room and board and transportation. So in other words, it's it's not simply eliminating, uh, it's not eliminating tuition and fees for everyone. It is saying, if you are able to afford it, great, wonderful for you. You should pay the full tuition. You can go and you'll still graduate debt-free because your family has money. For others, though, working class students will say, we know the costs are bigger than tuition and fees, so we'll support you on those as well as room and board so that we know you can get through to graduation. I hope that helped. It does. Max, I'd like to talk about another topic for a couple minutes before we let you go today, and that is the question of what is happening at the University of Massachusetts, and particularly at the flagship campus in Amherst. Uh, some uh, somewhat confusing, down in the weeds kind of discussion from the president, Marty Meehan, this past week about how many students, what the tuition is going to be, what the numbers are, what the economics are. And the bottom line seems to be as well, there's not enough money and there won't be beginning in about a year. And they're going to have to go back, the university is going to have to go back to the legislature for more money. At least that seems to be what the thrust of what uh, President Marty Meehan said. I'm wondering if you could sort that out for us. Sure. Well, uh, I mean, what what Marty Meehan is suggesting is what many college leaders have been saying, which is that we do have sort of demographic trend, trends going back to the crash of uh, economic crash of 2007, 2008, that there's likely to be for a while fewer college age students. So there's more pressure on, you know, who's going to get those students? Will, will they come to UMass Amherst? Will they come to the community colleges, et cetera? So there's a legitimate concern about that. What I would say, however, is that um, what the Senate and the House are doing in terms of a dramatic increase to financial aid, as well as spending on other parts of the higher ed budget, will help. Plus, if we truly implement something like debt-free higher education, we will see a lot more students coming in. That is the goal. We have this. We are a state that has the most, the greatest percentage of adults who are college graduates. And it's still only 55%. That's the highest in the country. That means 45% of our adults have no college degree. Now, many of them will not want that. Um, but maybe a good portion, if given true access, might want a certificate or might um, want to go for a two-year college degree or a four-year college or university degree. In other words, there's a lot of room in our society, in Massachusetts, the most educated in the country, to have more people go to our public colleges and universities, and that will also help the bottom line. And the bottom line, I want to spend one more minute on this. The bottom line is a workforce that can support the economy of this state because we are a uh, we are a state that depends significantly on human capital. Uh, we're not we're not going to have uh, mining in Massachusetts. We're not going to have uh, various uh, kinds of uh, industrial plants, but we have human capital. And that's what we're talking about. That's right? what we have. And we know we have likely in the next decade, 100 or I see an estimate of 200,000 shortage in college educated workers. And look, Bill, I agree. I mean, I live for fairly near you and I have been digging in my backyard for years trying to find that oil. And <laughs> it, it's not there. It's just not there. So that is what that is. We have to build on the strength of Massachusetts, which is for has been for so long, which is our educated population. 
We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page. He is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and is with us every Friday. Max, we so appreciate your time, your insight, and your leadership. Thanks really so very, very much. Thank you, Bill. Coming up, we have Salman Hamid, Salman Hamid's universe, right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Everyone loves a clean house, but between our jobs and our families, who has time to keep the house clean? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love the opportunity to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work in your home or business. At Green Love Eco Cleaning, we use our signature line of non-toxic aromatherapy cleaning solutions to keep your home or office clean while promoting greener, healthier lifestyle options for you and your family. To find out more about the services we provide, check out our website at greenloveclean.com. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. Welcome to Salman Hamid's Universe. Salman Hamid, Hampshire College professor and astronomer. This is his monthly time with us. We really appreciate your taking this time every month, Professor. And I would like to begin this segment by asking you about, well, breaking news from outer space. We kind of say that tongue in cheek, but in fact, there is a lot of breaking news from outer space. Now, it might be a few... Uh, 100 million light years old, and technically speaking, but it's news to us. And there's lots in terms of discovery of moons that are going on, that is going on. So tell us what's, what has rocked the uh, world, world of astronomy in the last week or two or three. Okay, so, so let's, uh, since uh, Bill, you had uh, written about sort of like, you know, what uh, James Webb Space Telescope has been up to. and I thought we can talk about sort of like, you know, that uh, the process of science, because what has been 
going on, and you may have seen the headlines, and we may have talked about it as well, that it was finding galaxies early in the universe, which James Webb Space Telescope is designed to do. One of its key missions is to find the first galaxies that formed in the universe. And it is better at it. It is specifically designed at it uh, compared to, for example, Hubble Space Telescope. So when astronomers got even the very first image, like a beautiful uh, cluster of galaxies, sort of like, you know, and since then there have been other images as well. One thing that has been surprising is that it looks like, at least from the early images, that there are galaxies that are quite big, which astronomers thought initially, like, you know, that that actually breaks down our models because our universe started about 13.7 billion years ago. And so you expect sort of like, you know, that uh, it takes some time to form stars and galaxies. So you cannot just suddenly come up with big galaxies. So that was the news. The problem is that, and all the headlines and stuff like that. But now there, there are explanations of it. In fact, there is a paper that recently came out. They said, well, are those really galaxies? Maybe it's something else and so on and so forth. What's to me, what's interesting about all of this is we normally, I think, I like, you know, did not see science happening in the news, meaning to say there are always when you have a new telescope, you find surprising things. People are figuring it out what's going on. There is a paper that comes out and there is a time for that paper to be peer reviewed and others respond to it. But now we are seeing sort of like, you know, paper comes out, there is a press release or it gets picked up by the press. It makes a big headline and then you go the other way. So James Webb Space Telescope, it's a great telescope. It's a new telescope, but a lot of back and forth going on in some sense. It just tells you science is messy. Well, not too messy. I mean, it's a million miles <laughs> away uh, out in outer space taking these photographs. I would like, or at least capturing these images, I, I would like you to explain to us what it is that the James Webb Space Telescope is actually taking an image of or capturing an image of what is it looking at? All right, so it's so, so different things, um, and uh, and it's not just images. What it's where its power lies is that it can also take what astronomers call uh, a spectrum, uh, or sort of like you know, and this is where you break the light, uh, just like a rainbow, like a prism. And that actually can give you information about composition of things. It can tell you what things are made up of. And that takes more time because as you can imagine, if you are looking at a very faint galaxy, it is then breaking its light down into smaller segments. And so that takes more time, but it provides spectacular information. But you also get images which are relatively easier to get. now. One of the key things is that it is not looking at the visible light. It is looking in the infrared, and uh, which is great for looking at, for example, the earliest galaxies because the universe is expanding. And because of the expansion, uh, the galaxies are moving away from us. And so their light shifted more 
to the red part of the spectrum. Now, the farthest you, the farther you are, the faster is the expansion. Maybe meaning to say they are going far, far, faster from us. And so the far, the first galaxies in the universe, which are also the farthest from us, they actually are more visible, not in the visible light, but in the infrared. That's the reason why James Webb Space Telescope is great. And that is what it is looking at. So all of its sensitivity, all of its work is in the infrared. Is there some sense with the James Webb Space Telescope that maybe somehow you could get beyond the uh, these images or this infrared uh, spectrum? I mean, this is the beginning of the universe as we know it, but there's a universe that somehow is created, and I'm wondering what we're learning about how it was create, created. Yeah, so, uh, by, by the way, a nice reference to build to the REM, like, you know, it's the beginning of the universe as we know it, rather than the end of the world. But anyway, uh, the, the, <laughs> uh, no, because we are limited by when the universe started. So that is one thing that we are limited to in terms of time. And there are other factors as well, because in the beginning, oh, it's like biblical. Uh, in the beginning, the universe was opaque, meaning to say that light could not escape from it for about a few 100,000 years. And that is a limit that we can, even if you have the biggest telescope in the world, you cannot go beyond that uh, because there were no photons that were freely floating. It's like looking at, I mean, don't look at the sun, but it's like when you look at the sun, I mean, it's made up of gases, but what we see is where it's opaque, right? In the same way, the entire universe was opaque because the density was so high, but about 300,000 years uh, after the beginning of the universe, when the universe was expanding, it became cool enough that the light could actually freely flow. So we do have a limitation in terms of how far back we can, and again, I'm using air quotes on radio, when we can see. And by the way, that first light that escaped, we can detect it. That's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's, that was the evidence for Big Bang because that's what it had predicted. So we are limited to a certain degree that we cannot see in some sense, at least in light, uh, beyond that. And so James Webb Space Telescope, uh, the galaxies that it is finding, it is finding at about a few hundred million, 200 million, 300 million years after the Big Bang, which is still very early. And just as a context, we are talking about the universe starting 13.7 billion years ago. And here you have these first galaxies, which are only 200 million years or 250 million years after that. Does the James Webb Space Telescope show us the Big Bang? No, you can't see it. Again, for the same reason, because you have, you don't, first of all, Big Bang, yes, I mean, I mean, in some sense, because Big Bang happened everywhere, right? It didn't happen over there. It, we are all, we were all part of the Big Bang. So Big Bang actually happened every single point to a certain degree. Uh, but we also have a limit in terms of uh, how far back we can see after the Big Bang, because in order to see, you need photons, and photons 
the density was so high that photons could not escape the universe. And so we are, we cannot see with light be before roughly 300,000 years after the Big Bang. We are just stuck. That's, that's a limit because the universe was opaque before that. And when you say we can't see, are you talking about the ability of human beings through our eyes to perceive of this light? Is that what you mean by see? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you need photons to see. And if photons were trapped, they were getting absorbed. So you don't have photons that, uh, that, that are available that you can actually see through. It's too dense, right? It's like if you want to see inside the sun, I mean, this is just an example, and it's a bad example because sun, you see it as, a, as there, whereas the Big Bang is everywhere. So if you want to see sort of like, you know, that it, the things get very dense, you do not have photons, light escaping from it. And so you, in some sense, and again, I may be butchering um, examples in there, but one way of thinking about it is like, you know, you hit a, in some ways, a wall of light when you keep on going back and back in time, because then that's when the universe is much more opaque. And so the wall of light in the same way as it's this, what we see as the surface of the sun, which is not the surface, it's the place where the sun becomes opaque. So, because it's gases, but there is sun uh, uh, after that too, but at what we see as the disk in the sky, that is the place where the sun is opaque. In the same way you can think of the universe being dense enough opaque enough that and it's everywhere right because big bang happened everywhere so you cannot in terms of time you cannot see before roughly three hundred thousand years after the big bang you cannot go beyond that because it's opaque there is light is not freely available to detect salman this is buzz is that three hundred thousand year i mean we're talking about billions of years is that I know this is all theory to some extent, but how do we isolate it down to 300,000? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, So this was an amazing prediction from the Big Bang model. I mean, again, if you think about it, like, you know, why do we think that Big Bang model is the one that actually worked? And that was because there were other models too. There was a steady state model. The universe has always existed. The universe has always been expanding, so on and so forth. Big Bang model said that if the universe was really dense when it started, and as it expands, because it has been expanding, then after a certain period of time, and it formed nuclei, hydrogen, helium, and you can all calculate that based upon the temperature. But as it's expanding, the temperature is getting uh, lower relatively. Uh, and what happened was that there were a lot of free electrons that were floating around. They were actually absorbing a lot of light as well. They predicted that when the universe gets to about 3000 degrees, the whole universe, electrons will be able to join with the nuclei to form the first atoms. And because of that, the free floating electrons get lower and the light can escape more freely. And that was a prediction that that would happen around 300,000 years after the Big Bang. This is frightening. That made sense to me. That's scary. Okay. I'm not sure it made sense to me, but we're going to come back and review it right after this. We'll be back with more with Salman Hamid, Hampshire College professor and astronomer. This is Salman Hamid's universe, and we'll be right back. Stone by, stone by, stone by. 
Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Northampton City Council voted to approve the city's general budget for the 2024 fiscal year at last night's meeting. The main topic of discussion was an increase to the police department budget meant to give the department more time to hire new officers. City Council President Jim Nash. Our officers are recruited by other departments because they get well trained. Councillor Jamila Gore was the sole vote against passing the city budget due to the $166,000 increase to the police department. True Leaf Cannabis Corp. is closing all their dispensary locations in Massachusetts by the end of the month. They have locations in Northampton, Framingham, Worcester, and a growing facility in Holyoke. True Leaf was fined by OSHA last year after an employee died working at their Holyoke facility. And this summer's downtown music schedule is out for Northampton. The city of Northampton will present local artists on stage in the Masonic Street parking lot annex next to the Iconica Social Club on Fridays from 6 to 8 p.m. On Sunday afternoon from 4 to 6, there will be salsa lessons for beginners in the same location featuring McCoy Jameson. New this year, starting on Thursdays in June and continuing through July and August from 6 to 8 p.m., the city of Northampton and Northampton Brewery will present local artists on stage in the Brewster Court walkway. Between the in the parking garage. Lastly, on select Tuesdays and Fridays this summer, enjoy live music and salsa in Pulaski Park. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. Mixture of sun and clouds this morning, showers and thunderstorms developing this afternoon, especially after 4 o'clock, a high of 88 to 92. Scattered showers this evening, an overnight low of 50 to 56. For Saturday, mostly cloudy, chance for a light shower, a high of 62 to 66. Mostly cloudy, some showers on Sunday, upper 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Una medida republicana que anula el plan de cancelación de préstamos estudiantiles del presidente Joe Biden fue aprobada el jueves en el Senado y ahora enfrenta a un esperado veto. La votación fue de 52 a 46 con el apoyo de los senadores demócratas Joe Manchin de Virginia Occidental y John Tester de Montana, así como de la senadora independiente de Arizona Kristen Sinema. La resolución fue aprobada la semana pasada por la Cámara de Representantes controlada por el Partido Republicano con una votación de 218 a 203. Biden se ha comprometido a mantener su compromiso de cancelar hasta 20 mil dólares en préstamos estudiantiles federales para 43 millones de personas. La legislación se suma a las críticas republicanas al plan que se detuvo en noviembre en respuesta a las demandas de los opositores conservadores. La Corte Suprema escuchó los argumentos en febrero en un desafío a la medida de Biden con la mayoría conservadora aparentemente lista para hundir el plan. Se espera una decisión en las próximas semanas. La legislación 
administración tiene como objetivo revocar el plan de cancelación de Biden y restringir la capacidad del Departamento de Educación para cancelar préstamos estudiantiles en el futuro. Rescindiría la última extensión de Biden de una pausa de pago que comenzó a principios de la pandemia. Además, agregaría retroactivamente varios meses de intereses de préstamos estudiantiles que no se aplicaron con la extensión de Biden. El desafío del Partido Republicano invocó la Ley de Revisión del Congreso que permite al Congreso deshacer las regulaciones del Poder Ejecutivo promulgadas recientemente. Aprobar una resolución requiere una mayoría simple en ambas cámaras, pero anular un veto presidencial requiere mayorías de dos tercios en la Cámara y el Senado y no se espera que los republicanos tengan suficiente apoyo para hacerlo. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. We have just about to know to learn to understand the origins of life in the universe just and then we had to take a break so, so solve that for us if you would please uh, professor well, yeah well thank you all i what i really wanted to uh towards the end suggest was that it is really stunning because this prediction i mean i'm mean, just think about it like you know so so, so mathematically people figured out sort of like, you know, if the Big Bang model is correct and the universe would be expanding and it would be hot in the beginning and then as it expands, it cools down. So there was a very specific prediction that in the 50s and 60s, the prediction was that basically that light that was at 3000 degrees when electrons merged together, today, that light, the temperature of that would be about five degrees Kelvin. That was a prediction. And it was like, okay, so if you take a thermometer and take it out in space and measure it away from stars, away from other things, you would find some photons that are from that five degree Kelvin. And in 1965, astronomers found, um, or physicists, uh, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, they found temperature at or light at 2.7 degrees Kelvin. This was a stunning confirmation of the Big Bang because that was one of the big predictions. And then uh, later on, uh, they also got a Nobel Prize for that. And so this is what, uh, again, so going back to it, so this is the wall we were talking about how, where you cannot go back. So this radiation, this light, this is called cosmic microwave background radiation. This is the leftover light in some sense from the Big Bang. This is the light for the first time that escaped. Before that, it's opaque. So this is how far you can go. And this represents this escaped when the universe was about 300,000 years old. Okay, so Salman Hamid, I hate to do this to you, but in 30 seconds, could you give us the elevator speech on what is the Big Bang? Oh, 30 seconds. I, I need about 13.7 billion years. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean so, so that is the idea that uh, our universe, and again, it gets a little messy, uh, but the universe that we see was much more condensed. The, everything was much more compressed, uh, and it started expanding. It was very, very, very hot, very small. That's where I'm going to put up 
sort of like, you know, just imagine sort of like, you know, everything was very close together, very high dense, very hot uh, place. And then it started expanding. And we are all part of that. And today this whole universe, so th and this happened about 13.7 billion years ago. And uh, it initially expanded very fast. And then it's sort of like, you know, uh, it's expanding at a normal speed that we see today. That's the Big Bang model. And when it was hot, out of that, you didn't, in, right in the beginning, you didn't have nuclear, you didn't have elements, but out of light, out of energy, it, because energy and mass are interchangeable, you had hydrogen, helium, uh, a little bit of lithium that formed around that. And that's it, universe kept on expanding. You couldn't make more elements, but okay. the other elements were formed inside stars. So that's why we are made up of star stuff. Carl Sagan's we are all made of star and stardust. Okay, so let's let's turn from stars to planets for a minute. The uh, moons of Mars have been very much in the news. Uh, more breaking news from outer space. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to uh, mention this actually a pretty cool result that came out and that is um, so we have been puzzled by Earth's moon. Earth has a pretty large moon. And Apollo mission, so this is a plug for science for space missions. Apollo mission actually, when they brought back samples, uh, it actually suggested that probably our moon was formed when early on in the solar system. So now we are talking about timescales of about four and a half billion years. Okay, so this is the beginning of our own solar system when the solar system was forming. A large body, the size of Mars, struck the earth and out of that our moon was formed and so now this is what we think it's the impact theory we think our moon was formed based upon that now jupiter's moons and saturn's moons which are a lot we think that most of those formed like our solar system so you have a big planet and the material around it it coalesced into the moons into moons well so that's the second way of forming moons and the third, we thought that moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos, which are actually relatively small. Phobos is about 17 miles in diameter. They look like potato. So like, you know, sort of like they're not fully round because they're pretty small. And uh, Deimos is only about nine miles at its widest. So these are pretty small bodies. And astronomers thought that they were captured from the asteroid belt or sort of like you know, asteroids. These were asteroids from the asteroid belt, came close to Mars and they were captured. So this was another way of forming moons. And there were some puzzling things about it because they were like, well, their orbits are too circular. Why is that the case? So and so forth. But just recently there is a spacecraft from the United Arab Emirates. It's called Hope Orbiter or Emirates Mars mission. It has been there from February, 2021. It took a close-up picture, relatively um, the, the closest or the sharpest image of its moon, Deimos. And it also looked at its composition. Uh, it's a beautiful picture. It still looks weird, maybe tater tots or something like that, like, you know, the moon. But in terms of composition, as it turns out, its composition is not like that of asteroids, but rather of Mars. In fact, it's sort of, it's sort of like, you know, it has the basaltic rock. It is made up of that, which is more like the surface of Mars than of asteroids. 
And now we think, in fact, that this small moon may have also formed sort of like out of an impact, something struck Mars. And just like our own moon, which is much, much bigger, uh, Martian moons were also formed by that. So it's a, it's a very different way. And, and as you can see, sort of like even these things, how they change our views when you have better instruments and better things. Does it and orbit we, uh, Mars the same way that our moon orbits the Earth? Uh, uh, sorry, I, I didn't hear the question. Does it orbit Mars the same way our moon orbits the Earth? They are much closer. So, for example, Phobos is uh, or, or orbits only 3,700 miles from uh, from the surface. So it's actually and, and 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 by the way, but they are very small. They have been captured by our own spacecrafts eclipsing the sun. Except that they are so small that actually they don't fully block the sun. But yeah, so they are. But they are much much closer. But they are also much smaller. Uh, Deimos, which we are talking about. Uh, it uh, it orbits at about 15,000 miles, and it takes about 30 hours to go once around its moon. So m much quicker uh, in that sense. But yeah, go ahead. Beth. Well, I was going to say we are going to take a break uh, because, well, things going around our Earth, well, there are a lot of them, and it's, apparently there are unidentified aerial phenomenon. The United States Congress has been looking into what we used to call UFOs. And, well, we're going to take a look at those phenomenon right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things. Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. We have been talking about the origins of, well, life in the universe and the new uh, discoveries about moons and Mars. But I think we should really spend a little time about what is happening in the United States Congress that has been looking into unidentified flying objects, which became unidentified aerial phenomenon, which became something else recently as well. Um, and well, the Congress has been looking into this pretty seriously. Salman Hamid, what is the latest on unidentified aerial phenomenon? Well, I I think what I'm going to do is to record a segment and we can always play the same thing uh, over and over again. And uh, that actually tells you something, right? I mean, what, what it tells you is, um, Again, I go back to New York Times story from 2017, which triggered all of this. There is a lot of talk, but really nothing has changed. And uh, people keep on talking about things and it turns out there is nothing. So one of the reports that came out about, I think two weeks ago, it said that uh, all of the aerial phenomena actually can be explained by not aliens. And um, there are few unexplained. And remember, there can be things that can be unexplained, right? I mean, the example that goes is that, uh, you know, that NYPD or whatever, like, you know, solves 90% of the murder cases, but doesn't mean that the next, the other 10% were actually abducted by aliens. But you just don't know, you don't have enough information, so and so forth. So just because it is unexplained doesn't mean that those are aliens. And in fact, the idea that those are aliens has a very, very, very high bar as it should be. And so nothing has changed, but we keep on hearing about these, uh, interestingly, the news is about the hearings, not whether they're aliens or not, and that they are taking more seriously. And so that has been going on since 2017 when New York Times released videos that that were all 2003, 2005. Now we have more videos, but nothing really has changed. World hasn't changed. Life hasn't changed. And I should mention that some of the key elements of the story from 2017 have been redacted from New York Times, but nobody cares because UAPs are a great business for everyone, including the government, because that also gives them a thing. We are taking it seriously. We are looking at it. Who knows? If it's not aliens, it could be China. So there is always this qualification that goes in. And now once it got into the national defense aspect, there is no way to have real critical analysis. Always like, even if you push back, oh, but it could be China. Well, sure. But those are two very, very, very different things about are those spacecrafts from another planet or China. But when there are hearings, the two things get combined together, and I think that's where the problem lies. Well, part of the problem lies with the idea that how could we be the only advanced technological uh, civilization in the universe? There have to be, this has to be others out there. And so it makes sort of logical sense that there are, uh, or it would make sense that there are uh, visitors from other galaxies who might want to drop in and see what we're doing here. No, 
No, those are two different things. Are there life forms out there? Yes. I vote for that. Absolutely. Are there intelligent species out there? Probably, yes. Depends upon how you define intelligence. Are there technological civilizations? Probably, yes. Those are all things. That's a different question. How are they visiting us? Whoa, in a tiny French segment of 30,000 light years away from the center of our own galaxy, these species that about 100 years ago didn't know even how to fly. And they go like, no, 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 we are very important. That's where we are going to visit. So that's where the problem lies, not the other aspect that are there civilizations out there. Okay, we're going to leave it. We've solved the problems <laughs> of the universe. We have solved the creation story. Thank you so much, Salman. I mean, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Really appreciate your time. Thank and you, and I insights. hope you feel better. Thank you very much. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to WHMP North 015. WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are really lucky to uh, have today our monthly segment, with, uh, which we call Community Action, with the Executive Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, Claire Higgins. We are so lucky to have you. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. It is our pleasure to have you here. Yesterday, um, the Senate approved, uh, and today the president will likely sign the uh, the legislation that flowed from the agreement that was reached on the debt ceiling. And I think, with respect to community action, what you do for a living, which is to keep to enrich our community uh, by embracing all types of people that comprise our communities here in this region. Um, I think that there's a profound impact on some people by this agreement that the president reached with the Speaker of the House, I hate to say, Kevin McCarthy. So can you tell us about what your understanding is of what they agreed to and what its impact is going to be particularly on people in our region? Yes, thanks for that lead-in. And I just want to note that um, uh, it could have been worse. Um, when I was at Community Action and during the government shutdown, we had no money to run our 
Head Start classrooms because they weren't sending out checks to people. Mm. To pay, you know, they weren't going to pay us to do the work, right? And I had no money to pay people's salaries. We cobbled together money so that we could keep going from other sources. Just to protect our future. To, we had kids and parents who needed the, the program open so that they could go to work or go to school. So, yeah, we had to do that. It was also the start of the f fiscal year. So we borrowed money to keep at least the, some of the staff on in fuel assistance so that at least they could answer the phones as they started ringing. So you so, were, while we were all curious about so, what was going to happen, you were waiting with bated breath to see what this well, agreement I was, was worried. Like. I was glad that they were going to fight about the debt ceiling as opposed to fight about a government shutdown because the government shutdown has even more effects, at least from where I sit as an agency that's a um, federal contractor, but also anybody who receives a Social Security check and the... The, the veterans who received their benefit checks and all those folks would have been drastically affected by that too. My sister uh, <laughs> is a federal retiree and she texted me yesterday saying, Check, checks in the mail. So, <laughs> so I said, well, I guess they decided they could pay you. But, um, you know, there's a, uh, lots of people who, who depend on government, not just my sister, the government employee, but People who are, who are retirees, people who, who serve the country in the military, lots of folks who depend on that. So that, so that's, and maybe I'm just an optimist, but I think it could have been worse. Well, let's rewind the tape. Tell us about the debt ceiling. So let's talk about, about what that. The, what the right. agreement was. So the debt ceiling is, is we spend more than we take and then we borrow to cover the bills because during the appropriation proce process, unlike any other government in the United, you know, any state or local government, they set the the spending level without deciding if they have the money to pay for it. Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to using debt. It, 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 a lot it, of families do. A lot of, a lot of, and a lot of countries do, too. So that's not a terrible thing. When Dick Gephardt was the Speaker of the House or whatever he played, role he played, I think he was the Speaker of the House, when you pass the budget, you also raise the debt ceiling to the level of the budget. That was called the Gephardt Rule, and it was repealed in 2011, and we went back to this nonsense about fighting over the debt ceiling. They passed it twice under Trump. So, come on. Okay, so we're having this fight. And honestly, it could again, it could have been a lot worse. There were deeper cuts on the table in a lot of different places. The one that is particularly irritating to me right now, to, today, is the work requirement for SNAP. You know, the average SNAP S beneficiary... Let's say, what is SNAP? SNAP, thank you very much. People, the common term for it for many, many years was food stamp. And... and Food stamps, right? We people were, had food stamps because they actually had little stamps. So, back in the day, now it's uh, called this, it, the real name of it is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, now commonly referred to as SNAP. It's not a big benefit. People, I just want to look at my little notes here. That most of the people, about seventy percent, are are children, elderly, or adults with disabilities. So that's a lot of people. In order to afford food, they, they rely SNAP. on SNAP benefits. And 41% are in working families already. So it's not, and that raises the larger question in our country that we should be exploring with a Congress who has the willingness to explore, which won't be this one. Why don't jobs pay enough money so that people don't have to get additional money from the government? Yeah, it's even worse than that. <laughs> that it, 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 it goes to, what's her name, Lauren Boebert. I don't even like to say the name. Uh, she asked, so why don't you... you've already said he who shall not be named when you uh -huh. talked about the first guy. Now we've got she who shall I'm not so be named. I'm so sorry. Okay. I'm so sorry. That's all right. You're forgetting. Yeah, I'm, I'm regretting everything I say this morning. You're way. making yourself itchy, too. For radio listeners, he's scratching his arm <laughs> while he said, when he said Lauren Boebert. He might be allergic to her. 
Well, that was our segment with Claire Higgins. We'll go on to our next guest. I'm scratching mine, too. <laughs> but what, I, uh, what she said is, why don't these people just get a job? And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're saying 40% in this region are working people. 41% nationally are, are working people. I'm per, I don't have the exact statistics for our region, but I would be surprised if it wasn't higher. Right? Now, and then remember... The state, the Republicans get to go home, or whoever voted for the work requirement, which I think was Republicans, get to go home to tell their constituents, look, we're going to make those people work for their food stamps. Well, the federal government's not going to make them. State government's going to have to prop up the bureaucracy that monitors that, when we could be spending that money on a whole bunch of other interesting things, right, that would be actually helpful to get people up and out of poverty. So it, it, it makes people who are prone to believe that people without money are, dis, uh, are dishonest or, or, or not to be trusted. Or lazy. Or lazy, feel better. At the same time, in, the debt, in this debt ceiling lifting, they agreed to spend less on IRS because I guess they think rich people should be trusted. So, of course, they're filing their Let's taxes. Let's balance the budget, but not... Uh, not actually on. trying to figure out if we're collecting all the taxes that we should be collecting Right. That are owed. That are actually owed. Right. So we're going to reduce those numbers. I just talked to a friend of mine who is having a conversation with the IRS in the last couple of years as she's continued to try to work on this problem. She's not going to jail or anything. She says they have a dispute. She's talked to at least five or six different people because the turnover there is so high because there's not enough people. So you, Claire Higgins, <laughs> you're the executive director of an agency which, which uh, provides services to a large number right. of people. You have to worry not only about what you're spending, right. but what the revenues are that are coming in. That's right. I don't know what these Republicans think when, they're not, when they talk about debt, but they don't consider See, the, the revenue, revenue as part of the, yeah. Although they're, they'll look at my audit to make sure that I got enough revenue to pay, pay my expenses. So, you know, we... W- w- uh, many, many, many of the people who receive our services are also eligible for SNAP. And when you come to us, we also work to identify what else you might be eligible for. Um, and in fact, on the state level, the go- state government has been much better about thinking how to reduce the burden that is put on people with low incomes to continuously prove that they're poor. So walking from place to place with the folder full of documentations, right, that says, here, I'm poor, see? Uh, if they're sophisticated enough to know which documentation they well, need. Well, we meet with them and we tell them what documentation, but a lot of the documentation overlaps. So at least for we're, this year, we had an experimental attempt at, um, from, run by the state to say if you're on SNAP, you can also be on fuel assistance, which is a big help to those folks. And if they're, if they're eligible for fuel assistance, not 100%, but likely they'll be eligible for SNAP. So th- there was something that I read that I still don't understand. People between the ages of 50 and 54. Right. Uh, could you explain for us what that is? I think the cutoff was uh, uh, 50, and now they're raising it up to 54, right? If you're over 50, you didn't have to. There is a work requirement, right? Um, it, I think they've raised the age for the work requirement. Now, to, their, to the Democrats' credit, even though it's hard to identify these populations, They've identified that people who are homeless shouldn't have to work for, the, for it. And, and, um, also veterans, isn't it? Uh, veterans, and then homeless, and homeless youth are people who have been homeless youth. Um, there's a high correlation with homelessness as a young person and chronic homelessness. 
So anything we can do to help people who are homeless as young people to stabilize and have, have sort of create some permanency in their life is a really helpful thing to do. How so do you, those uh, things are okay, and I think net net, they're not going to save that much money on this whole whole deal, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just not going to save. And well, in fact, it might end up costing more because they've exempted the homeless and the could, veterans. It, it could. I think that I, I, that remains to be seen. There's some research papers out there that say it could be a net wash or actually cost more. There's also there's an administrative burden that the federal government is not checking the the signatures that say, oh, you worked your hours this week. It's state governments that have to set up. They already have the bureaucracy set up. To how much more do they have to set up to make sure that happens? And could those administrative dobs, do, dollars be better spent just directly on the benefit? Claire Higgins, you, you were mayor of Northampton. You're now executive director of... Everybody reminds me of that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I have to keep doing it because, in fact, you had... <laughs> I, uh, I might go into the mayor relocation protection program. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, they, maybe I'd become a blonde. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the reason why I'm mentioning your yeah. your prior life as mayor of Northampton yeah. is is because this entire um, uh, question of uh, we have this these debts that we have, and so many of us progressives are so affronted by the fact that there even was a negotiation. We're angry at the president right. that even allowed right. this negotiation to happen. Bill and I have discussed on the air the Fourteenth Amendment and yeah. whether or not it does yeah. what what I think that it does, which is it guarantees that we're going to pay our debts like all of us have to pay our debts that we've already incurred. But you, as somebody who's managed large budgets, how do you feel about the fact that there was this agreement at all, this negotiation at all? I have mixed feelings about it, honestly. Um, this is the system we have. I think the president was right if he did the thing with the 14th Amendment it, without knowing, without exploring it outside the deadline that it could have re resulted in some chaos. And I think he was right about that. I want to understand more about the 14th Amendment. It was passed during Reconstruction to make sure, you know. So it's an interesting question. And, uh, and given the current Supreme Court, I don't know that we would win that question. So that's my concern about, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I just pretend to be one. So I, I'll, I'll look at the real lawyer. Well, you two are real lawyers. Well, Bill Newman's a real lawyer. Bill? Yeah, I, I, I don't. Uh, by this uh, argument about the 14th Amendment uh, requiring the uh, uh, debt ceiling. What the 14th yep. Amendment says is that the debts of the United States shall not be questioned. And no one's questioning the debt. It doesn't say, and the government will pay off uh, its bills in this order. It just doesn't say yeah. that. I know that Professor Lawrence Tribe wrote a big piece about it. It got a lot of attention, but I don't think the words are there. I'm convinced the words are not there. So that you think it would allow the, the president to evoke, in, invoke the 14th Amendment? No, I don't. I don't I either. Don't. I, I actually, and even if I thought it did, I think the Supreme Court would not think it did. Right, and, and it's never been done before. And we've right. had a debt ceiling for many, many decades. And uh, I think that that itself would have created chaos uh, in the financial markets and in the, in the political world as well. So I, I, I think it's a bad idea, for, bad idea for Biden to do it. And I don't think legally that it has, uh, that it really has much in the way of substance that would appeal to this Supreme Court. Right, right. I'm glad my, 
my fake attorney analysis jives with the real attorney analysis of, of Attorney Newman. Anything but, we could do to make th you thank happy. You. I, I feel better. But, but I, the other issue, though, is I think the idea, just like the rest of us do, like and state governments do, if you decide you're going to spend X amount of dollars, you have to show on the other side of the ledger how you can do it. You can do it through debt. You just should have to show it, right? Commonwealth of Massachusetts has to show a balanced budget, right? It, it can show that it's using one-time revenue, right? Uh, and there were, but actually, state governments I don't think can bond for debt in that way, like as to use it as revenue. I could be wrong about that. But you at least have to... Well, I think in Massachusetts, we can only borrow up to 10% of what our budget is, yeah, right? I, I so we have that a sounds cap. Right. Yes. And, and so it's all... But don't forget, the federal government, unlike the rest of these governmental entities, can print the money. So it just looks different at the federal level, right? And the fact that the federal level can go into debt actually is the stabilizer for states when they... It, you know, the pandemic is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. When revenues caved the federal government could identify the money. We are talking with Claire Higgins, the executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back about what really the impact on her clients, the people that she works with every day is. Not just from this debt ceiling, but this climate we find ourselves in. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 8.15, 12.15, and 4.15. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. <laughs> and we are back with Claire Higgins. I'm trying to steal her phone 
uh, thinking that it was mine. She just grabbed it right out of my hand. Claire Higgins, executive director of um, the Community Action of Pioneer Valley. So um, it's t let me ask you a terribly unfair question. How mm -hmm. are your clients doing in this climate? I think it's been really difficult for people. We're seeing people calling about uh, housing because rents have gone up. Uh, rents have gone up a fair amount. Um, we're, uh, the inflation in food prices, the inflation, you know, the gas prices, even though they came down, this winter was terrible for fuel. So it's just been really hard on people. We've seen uh, first time in a very long time lines outside our food pantry on Main Street and Greenfield before we open at 8.30. Uh, we, the food bank and food banks across the United States are struggling to get inventory. We're raising money to buy food to put on the shelves in the, in the food pantry. You know, we could go get the cheapest deal we can get. But uh, we, we're really, people are really struggling. I, I was talking to the person who manages that part of the organization, and she said, we're going out and buying can openers because we have a lot of canned goods. And so we just want to make sure if somebody doesn't have a can opener, if they're taking canned goods, they can take the can opener, mm -hmm. too. You know, it's that kind of, like, down to the ground here. What, what, what are the eligibility criteria for being a client of Community Action? Uh, we have, I, I, we could stay here for maybe 24 hours, and I could talk to you about all the different funding sources and all the different eligibility criteria there are, different um, salary level, you know, um, income levels, um, all, all kinds of things. So, but, you know, if you're under the, uh, I'll see if I can pull it up, because so, I don't have it all memorized, but if you're under the... Um, the federal poverty. Yeah, if you're under the you know the federal poverty line generally, or sometimes some percentage of the federal poverty line, and then people which is can pretty low. It's like in the early in the uh, yeah. I'm going to pull it up just so we don't something like that for a family. Of yeah, four. so we don't make it up. I'll, I'm going to pull it up. Yeah. She's using the phone. I almost stole. Yeah, that would have been hard to look it up. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> well, and but the other as I said earlier, people have to prove it through various methods, right? And sometimes you don't have quite the right piece of paper. So the annual line for, um, for somebody, at, at a mother and a child, is about in, 1920, in 2023, this is out of, as of 1-1923, is $19,720. So mm. you're a mom with a kid, right? Earning under $20,000. Yeah, and you, if you're earning under $20,000, you're working part-time. You may not have child care because child care, as we've talked about on another show, is in crisis, so people can't find child care. Even if a family of six is $40,000. Hmm. How do you feed somebody on $40,000? You know, yeah. and, and rent, you know, our rents are, I just saw an ad for a two-bedroom in Greenfield, $1,400. So... Right. Right. There goes, you know, typically in this area, people are spending huge amounts of money on their rent. And then the other thing that we don't have that Boston has, even though the rents there are measurably higher, they also have the T, which has gone to free fares. People here, the average fam household here has two cars because people don't work in the same place or they're driving two different directions. The kids go to school here and the kid goes to school there. So, guess is 350 a gallon. Yeah. So, if you add the housing cost plus the transportation costs in Massachusetts, and transportation doesn't count in anybody's measurement of poverty, people here are uh, in, in Western Massachusetts have a 
a high level of poverty. Um, Frank, uh, Suffolk, Suffolk County is the poorest county in the state, which is the Boston area, Boston itself. But uh, Hamden County is the next. Uh, Franklin County is, I think, fourth. Uh, Bristol is down there, uh, Southeast Shore. And then Hampshire County is in the middle. Uh, and But Berkshire County is poorer than Hampshire County. Right, their wealth is summer wealth that comes and then people leave. Right, it's just a different, and all these service jobs don't pay enough for people to actually afford housing or, you know, keep a car on the road. And, and, and we have right around here in the Northampton Amherst region, we do have some public transportation, not nearly what we need for right. people to get to right. and from work. But when you get out into the hill towns, yeah, if you if you live in Greenfield. And work in Amherst, which is and UMass is the largest employer. You need a car. You're not going to get easily to to uh, to uh, UMass from Greenfield. You can get there. It's it can be done. I'm just saying it's not for a worker. It's not going to work very well. Well, I love asking you unfair questions. What should our listeners know about the work that you do, the population that you serve, um, that they that they should know that they might not. Uh, you know, I was saying to somebody yesterday, we're kind of like the Swiss Army knife for government. Like, then when there's a problem, they'll call us up, right? So hunger, we staffed up the food pantry during the pandemic. Now all that money's going away, so now we're needing to fundraise more money to, to fill the shelves there. Child care, we're one of the largest child care providers in the Upper Valley. We, and in Hampshire, Franklin, and Ham, Western Hamden County, we're serving hundreds and hundreds of children. Fuel assistance is a big program. We serve, you know, tens of thousands of people in that program. All, t all told, we serve about 30,000 um, individuals and families, right? Uh, individuals, uh, families and children, and seniors across the board. And, uh, at, at a, and we spend about $30 million a year to do that. About half that money goes, comes into us and goes right back out to fuel companies, to... Um, vendors that we've hired to help people get their home weatherized or their, do their, you know, it's all that stuff. It, we, we don't keep it. It comes in and it goes right back out. So about half of our money is directly spent on salaries um, and offices and all those things. You know, so we're a large employer, but, but people look at our budget and think, geez, they have a lot of money. Well, that money just comes in and goes right back out again. Right? So and what, what can listeners do to help you, to help support your mission? They should. They can go to our website, um, capv.us. Community Action Pioneer Valley. Yep, capv.us, um, and they can read about us and see if that we're doing things that they want to support. I'll tell you um, that what we're seeing today is that housing has become a real challenge right now. We're seeing that food has become a real challenge right now, and I'm kind of laser focused on childcare right now because. People really can't go to work. And as we spoke the last time I was on, the rates out here in Western Mass, the state's willing to pay, are very, very low. I'm hopeful in this coming budget we'll be able to close that gap. But come and see what we do. And, you know, we always are grateful for donations. Donations help us fill the shelves at the pantry. They help us match grants that come from state or federal government where they say, well, we'll give you almost all enough, mo enough money, but we really want to know you mean it, so go find some other money, which is, that's a topic for after my retirement. But, um, you know, we, we need to always show community support, right? Well, 
that's a great place to leave it. We are very grateful as well that you, I think uh, you make our program better. It's, 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 you're an important voice for a, a major part of our community that enriches our community. And uh, Claire Higgins, Executive Director of the uh, Community Action of Pioneer Valley, thank you so much. We look forward to your segment on the first Friday. First uh, Friday. Of every it's, month. I'm, thank I'm, you. I'm, there's something about my early childhood in Catholic schools that that's... First Friday? Back. First Friday, yeah. Yeah. I'm supposed well. to go to church on First Friday. I'm coming to WHMP. Uh, my okay. people call it Chavez. <laughs> <laughs> my people call it Chavez. That's a t-shirt. Are thank you all. Thank you. We're going to be back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Okay. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Northampton City Council voted to approve the city's general budget for the 2024 fiscal year at last night's meeting. The main topic of discussion was an increase to the police department budget meant to give the department more time to hire new officers. City Council President Jim Nash. Our officers are recruited by other departments because they get well trained. Councilor Jimmy Lagore was the sole vote against passing the city budget due to the $166,000 increase to the police department. True Leave Cannabis Corp. is closing all their dispensary locations in Massachusetts by the end of the month. They have locations in Northampton, Framingham, Worcester, and a growing facility in Holyoke. True Leave was fined by OSHA last year after an employee died working at their Holyoke facility. And this summer's downtown music schedule is out for Northampton. The city of Northampton will present local artists on stage in the Masonic Street parking lot annex next to the Iconica Social Club on Fridays from 6 to 8 p.m. On Sunday afternoon from 4 to 6, there will be salsa lessons for beginners in the same location featuring McCoy Jameson. New this year, starting on Thursdays in June and continuing through July and August from 6 to 8 p.m., the city of Northampton and Northampton Brewery will present local artists on stage in the Brewster Court walkway between the in the parking garage. Lastly, on select Tuesdays and Fridays this summer, enjoy live music and salsa in Pulaski Park. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. Mixed with sun and clouds this morning, showers and thunderstorms developing this afternoon, especially after 4 o'clock, a high of 88 to 92. Scattered showers this evening, an overnight low of 50 to 56. For Saturday, mostly cloudy, chance for a light shower, a high of 62 to 66. Mostly cloudy, some showers on Sunday, upper 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Emotions and experiences play an important role in our financial decision-making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face when it comes to our relationship with money. Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Francis Rayum, Saturday mornings at 8.30 on 101.5, 1400 WHMP. Introducing You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Just use your Greenfield Savings Bank Debit MasterCard to make purchases and you'll earn rewards points every time. You'll even earn You Choose Rewards with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or PayPal, when you link your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Just go to our website and sign up for you choose rewards for your gsb debit mastercard it's free not a gsb customer yet just stop in any of our offices or open a new gsb checking account online and you'll find out how rewarding banking locally with greenfield savings can be 
Get a 1,000 You Choose Points bonus good for a $10 reward when you sign up during June at Greenfield Savings Bank. Member FDIC, member DIF. Greenfieldsavings.com. See bank for details. Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and families secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region, and the Northampton Radio Group. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show longtime local political activist Claudia Lefko. Of course, Claudia is well known for her work with the Iraqi Children's Art Project, as well as for her local activism. Uh, we also have with us in the studio uh, Rutherford H. Platt, because we want you to know about an event that they are involved in this coming Monday, 530 at the Forbes Library. And Rutherford H. Platt, Professor Emeritus at UMass Amherst, has a new book, really quite extraordinary, <laughs> and I think just the most eminently readable uh, uh, discussion of what our environments look like. Uh, reclaiming American Cities, the Struggle for People, Place, and Nature since 1900. Uh, Rudd Platt, thank you so much for being back on the show. We really appreciate it. Claudia Lefko, thank you so much for being back with us again as well. There's an event at Forbes Library, 5.30 Monday. Let's start there. What is it? Why is it? Uh, Claudia? Hi, Bill. Hi, Buzz. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure. Um, although it's strange talking to your voice, Bill, and not to your face. but So it's a panel discussion, um, and we've been putting this flyer up which has a quote um, by Rudd on it, which says, basically, for better or worse, the metropolitan complex is largely built. Now we have to make it as, as uh, bearable, sustainable, and humane as humanly possible. The question is how. So the panel is put together. There are four of us on the panel to discuss this question, to open up a, a bigger conversation about how do we create a humane, sustainable environment. It's 5.30. I think you said this, 5.30 at the Forbes. And when you say a humane, sustainable environment, for whom? Where? For people and nature. Well, I'm going to really let Rudd speak to all this. <laughs> the The panel, I'll just say that the whole project of, of reading the book, it's a community read. I've been selling his books out of my back porch for some months now, <laughs> and um, the library has some copies. People have been taking it out. You know, the, the panel grew out of my encounter with Rudd at an art opening for Harriet Diamond when we started talking about what was going on in town. And I realized Rudd's field is, you know, urban development or whatever, maybe not development. I don't know what the right word is. And so he gave me his book and it just it was like everybody should read this. And so um, the book the book is a very broad look at at. Uh, I'll let him talk at development. And it's also focused on the, the role of local initiatives. And so the panel is going to be Rudd, it's going to be me, and it's going to be two other local people um, 
Lars Clavier, who is the uh, Farm Program Coordinator for Nuestras Raíces in Hoyoke, and Alia Stouffer Collis. I asked her to say the name. She runs New Village. Uh, she's the director of New Village Child Care in Northampton, two local initiatives that have looked at what people and nature and how you integrate these need and how it plays out in a particular setting. So, you know, that's the panel. And we're all have been reading Red's book and we're going to be talking about the book and about ideas and and that's what we invite people to come and join us in the conversation. So Rudd is Rutherford Platt, and he is Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His book that we've been talking about is Reclaiming American Cities, The Struggle for People, Place, and Nature Since 1900. Uh, and he is an urban writer and a lecturer. He resides in Northampton. Uh, and he was a professor at UMass Amherst for many, many years. Rudd, I'd appreciate it uh, if you would. I, I want to ask you to read a bit so people can have a sense of what the book sounds like. But you have a really interesting personal history, including being a recover, including being a recovering lawyer. So <laughs> tell us, tell us a bit, if you would, how, how you got to this place and this interest in our environment and our cities and our towns in which we live. Well, it's great to be here, Bill, and uh, and if, thank you, Claudia, for having organized this, <clears throat> excuse my voice, but still having allergy problems, uh, this panel on Monday evening, and also giving me a chance to go back and reread some of my own book. Uh, and it isn't brand new. It actually was published by the UMass Press in 2014, um, it was it compiles a, a wide variety of experience uh, in making, and I'll get to the definition of humane urbanism in a moment. But experience in cities all over the United States is largely American-based. I didn't try to cover the whole world, although many similar efforts were going on in cities far and wide. Um, the, the, the point of it really is <clears throat> to question the top-down history of so much city planning. Um, I'm speaking as, by the way, as, a, yes, a, <laughs> a recovering lawyer from the University of Chicago um, and uh, also a PhD in geography at the University of Chicago. So I'm sort of a hybrid. And I... To answer your question <clears throat> about how did I become uh, what I am, whatever it is, I was trained or gained a, an incredible experience over five years in Chicago as a very young lawyer, a bit brash, um, and learning on the job, working for an organization called Open Lands. It was a startup at the time and founded by local uh, uh, wealthy people in, in the Chicago region. Uh, but it became a long-lasting uh, catalyst and incredibly respected voice down to the present day. Uh, I'm talking about open lands. 
and they are celebrating their 60th anniversary this fall, where I hope to be uh, a guest. Um, I came here having done battle in Chicago with the earlier Mayor Daley, uh, Richard J. Daley, and his uh, very top-down plan, uh, among others, to build an airport in Lake Michigan. Now, I won't pause to explain <laughs> how that was going to happen, but it didn't happen, uh, not because of me personally, but I was in the fringe of a, a, a number of organizations uh, that opposed it successfully. I had a little more to say on Daly's Crosstown Expressway, uh, which was intended to cut through a lot of black neighborhoods, a lot of uh, ma marginal white neighborhoods, and connect all of the radial expressways emanating from downtown Chicago. Um, I had a column in the Chicago Tribune on the subject, no less, at the age of 26 or so. But anyway, it was never built. And so, it, 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 to my surprise, it proved that public outcry, and I was m among many, um, can actually stop even Mayor Daley and the whole federal government behind him. Now, I came to Northampton, I looked around, what can I do here? Not much to compare with Daly's Lake Airport and, and Crosstown and other projects. But very early in my uh, teaching and residing in Florence, uh, my then uh, wife and, and lifelong dear friend who died last summer, Connie Platt, uh, noticed in the Gazette that the county, Hampshire County commissioners were <laughs> planning to divest a key parcel of land uh, to, an, to a veterans organization, a private organization, very worthy, but they were going to sell it at a modest price. Um, and I checked into this, and indeed, the sale of public land uh, to a selected private buyer is illegal in Massachusetts. And I was not a member of the bar here, but I managed to find someone who indeed was, and he filed a lawsuit against the county, um, and which put the project on hold. Then my late dear friend, Terry Blunt, who many, many of your audience, I'm sure, remember, Mr. Connecticut River. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, in fact, my best man in my second marriage. And uh, Terry took, the, took this parcel of land and with, as, as an employee of the state, and he put, made it the anchor of the Connecticut River Greenway in Massachusetts. It is now the, um, the parking lot and the entrance to the um, rail trail bridge, which was also accomplished, a lot, a lot of that due to Terry's work. And it's just unthinkable that you'd have a, a private club house on that site, right on the river next to the Coolidge Bridge. It's, it's a wonderful public amenity. So that got me a little bit started here. 
And in my writing and teaching and uh, outreach around the country, my students and I and other colleagues uh, organized a whole series of regional conferences under the general title of Humane Urbanism. We had conferences in Boston, New York, Baltimore, Riverside, California, Chicago, of course, uh, here and there, learning from local people, not telling them what to do, but letting them share with each other at these conferences the, um, uh, the experience of making their cities more humane. Now, let me just give you a definition of that phrase uh, from the book. Humane urbanism refers to efforts to make cities and suburbs greener, healthier and safer, more equitable and multicultural, more efficient, as in the use of energy, water and materials, and time, and drawing on um, William H. White and, and, and Jane Jacobs, more people-friendly and fun. Hmm. And we can see a lot of that going on in Northampton these days. It is fun. We went to the concert last night in Florence, uh, the Florence Community Band. Um, there's lots of music going on elsewhere in downtown along Main Street. So this is just a general pattern, but the point is that humane urbanism depends on local initiative. People like Claudia, people like Terry Blunt, uh, all over the valley, um, taking responsibility on particular neighborhoods or small watersheds or agricultural projects as with Nuestas Reces uh, and the community gardens in, in Northampton. I could go on and on, but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it back to you. Thank you. So humane urbanism, that is going to be the topic, which is panel on uh, Monday, June 5th at 5.30, 5.30 to 7 at the Forbes Library is going to be discussing. We'll hear more from Claudia Lefko and Rudd Platt right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015-1400 ER The Valley. We are WHMP. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7 and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. 
This week's Shop Tuesday is the Riverside Pub. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., you can purchase a $50 gift certificate for only $35 to the newly opened Riverside Pub on River Road in Agawam. The Riverside Pub has a riverfront patio, kino, live music, a never-ending menu with everything from loaded potatoes and burgers to delicious entrees like chicken parm. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. The Riverside Pub, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're talking with uh, Claudia Lefko and uh, Rudd Platt. We're talking about a panel that is going to be taking place on Monday, June 5th at 530 at Forbes Library. It is going to be talking about, um, well, in essence, about Northampton, about urban planning and about uh, uh, Rudd's experience as a professor and an author with respect to how best to design a city. Bill? Mm. Or, yeah, I, so Rudd, um, we should note that Rudd's uh, uh, most recent book is titled Reclaiming American Cities, the Struggle for People, Place, and Nature since 1900. Uh, there was a actual uh, plan in Northampton to have significant urban renewal tear down the old buildings, put up the new 50s kind of architecture. It didn't get very far, fortunately, and most of the old buildings were saved, not all of them. Um, but this idea that we should destroy our uh, our, our history uh, and the architecture and the buildings that made uh, our cities what they are, um, this had a lot of currency in the United States. Um, and it has taken an enormous amount of effort to preserve uh, cities and buildings uh, and, 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 and to have that kind of essence continue. And I'm wondering whether you think that we have, in fact, uh, made that decision and to, in fact, embrace our past and whether that lives here in Northampton and elsewhere. Right. Well, Bill, I think... Uh it's an ongoing struggle between uh, what you just described, the, the top-down influence of federal and state programs, one size fits all, urban renewal being a classic example. Um, and But on the other side of the struggle are all the Claudia Lefkos and Terry Blunts and are so many local activists who are particularly focused on neighborhoods, streets, um, or projects in the local community. And it's hard to generalize about humane urbanism because unlike the built environment, built under top-down architectural and design control, no two humane and urbanist projects are identical. I'm reading from the book now. (laughs) Uh, Goals and methods are mixed and matched in unique combinations 
in response to problems perceived and resources available. In other words, humane urbanism is an, quote, ecological, unquote, phenomenon that adapts and mutates from one setting to another with different cities and programs developing, developing their particular blends of goals, methods, organizations, leadership, and funding sources. And indeed, sometimes the federal and state programs can be extremely helpful, creatively applied, administered, and with local advocates who are adept at applying for uh, higher levels of funding. Lots of things can happen. But so if let, me ask, let me interrupt because we just have a yeah. couple minutes left. What, 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 do you, what do you think Northampton should be doing in terms of preserving uh, its, its history? And, and, and its uh, architectural uh, integrity and its past? Well, I would have to say immediately uh, to question the um, picture Main Street approach to uh, re <laughs> rehabilitating uh, downtown Main Street, which in effect will tie it up in knots for three years. And... Who knows what will survive after that? This is a plan that comes from on high, from Boston largely, and is uh, highly dubious as to its benefit for the city. But there are other smaller threats here and there or opportunities. But can, I'll, I'd like can, to let Claudia jump like, back yeah, in. I'd like to just jump in and say, Bill, this is the question we will be confronting at the panel. What are we doing and how will we do it? Um, and it's not that we have answers. And indeed, what's so great about Rudd's book is it doesn't present answers. It doesn't say we should do this. It says we should be very focused on specifics and very locally focused. And so when we put the panel together, that's why we have Nuestras Raices. These are people who looked at a vacant lots and said, we need food. We're going to grow food here. We're not going to park cars. Or Alia, who runs the child care program in my neighborhood at Montview, Child care is something that we desperately need. And the idea that you put it in a residential neighborhood, it's been a very creative project she's been involved in for 15 years, is, is a, it's a desperate need. But yet our neighborhood, they want to put houses there, not child care. So the panel, we hope to answer the question about what do we value historically in Northampton, but what does the future need to look like? And questioning just throwing that question out. So can I just say one other thing? I have books still available on my back porch at 40 Valley Street. They're $5 if you want to read it before the panel. You don't have to read the book. You can just come with your ideas, and I'll be selling the books at the library also for $5. So, again, 5.30 this Monday at Forbes Library. Uh, I, I have to quickly say that I, I actually disagree with you, right, about the involvement of the local community with regard to, to designing Main Street. There's been an enormous amount of local involvement in that. So we can have that discussion. Maybe we'll have it on Monday because the cities and the residents of the city have been very involved in the redesign of Main Street. But we should continue and we'll continue to do that, I think. So why don't we leave it there? Great. Again. 5.30 on Monday at the Forbes Library. Your ideas are welcome. 
Thank you so much, Claudio Lefko. Thank you so much, Rod Platt. We really appreciate it. Buzz Eisenberg, Dan Torres, I'm Bill Newman for all of us on WHMP. Thank you for being with us on Talk the Talk. And remember to walk the walk. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect. Certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in